0: Assigned reading and our lecture objectives. So the first objective is to define synaptic plasticity and to discuss the classification and the encoding of memory. So what is synaptic plasticity? It was first described by Donald Hebb in 1949 And here we have an excerpt. He says, when an axon of cell A excites cell B and repeatedly or persistently takes part in firing it, some growth processes or metabolic changes take place in one or both cells. So that A's efficiency as one of the cells firing B is increased. So what does this really mean? It means that we now have the, there's an ability to remodel our synapses functionally and structurally. And then we can have a lingering event which changes the synaptic efficiency or efficacy. Just a little pedigree here to show you some lineage, so if you see Dr. Kirkby's name down here, so, and then you're linked all the way back to some Nobel Prize winners, so it's just to show you that you are down here, so you are linked in lineage to these wonderful people, so good job. Classification and encoding of our memory. So our memories are stored in n grams. They're stored as n grams, but what are n grams? You can't see them, so it's not observable. It's a synaptic expression of expression or representation of an experience or our memory. We and this is how we believe our memories are imprinted. So in the brain, the engrams are going to be stored in particular populations of neurons. And once we have some modification of our synaptic strength, there will be a specific um, firing pattern that takes place, and this firing pattern will allow us to recall our memory or a specific memory, and this can be varied in nature, so we can be recalling factual memory, sensory memory, motor memory. And the memory is not stored all in one place. If you see a lemon, what comes to mind? You know its smell, you know its color, yeah? You know its taste, yeah? So all those centers have a memory Associated with the lemon. If I hold up a pen and ask you, well what is this? You know it's a pen. You tap into your motor memory because you know how to then you know how to write with the pen. So all that information is consolidated. So the encode the encoding for information of different things is in different areas. Question. Okay, so, excellent. You all saw this picture yesterday of the monsters. B is of the Adams family, so totally different. So let's define our amnesias. So for the higher percentage of you in the room, you're Encoding of your memory worked well up to yesterday at least. <laughs> so you're going to tap into that for your e- upcoming exam. When we have exams, sometimes we do have a little amnesia. As we get older, we may call these, you may have heard the term senior moments. You walk into a room and you, you know you've gone in there for something and you kind of forget and then you have to go back and then your mind is triggered. What happens in exams? You get to a question and you say to yourself, you, you know the answer. What, what, what do you have to do to try and get that answer out of your brain? Struggle? <laughs> Cry? No. Pray? All right. Do you, what, what tactics do you use? What, how, how did you study for the material? Yeah? Do you perhaps, there's, there's an image on the screen and it's asking you a question. Do you think back to your atlas and what the image looked like in your atlas? Was there a label on it? Did you redraw the image? You try to picture the label that you put on it maybe even back to where you were sitting in Taylor and you were using your orange marker and all of this kind of stuff what are these things these are cues you try to use some form of cue to tap into that memory unfortunately sometimes you don't get to that question or that the, the cue doesn't work and it's only till you're outside the answer comes to you, but unfortunately, the exam is already finished. So in terms of our deficiency in our memory or amnesias, we can have the failure to produce the initial engram, so a deficit in encoding, which I hope none of you have, and then we have losses of the Ngram. So just simply forgetting it and then failure to access it. So as I said, you could use some sort of, some sort of cue to try and now retrieve that information. And this is a trick that um, a lot of memory experts use. You know, they think up certain scenarios and different stories, and then they can remember certain things so let's now discuss long-term potentiation and depression of hippocampal cortical cerebral synapses and the phenomena to ionic and molecular events so we're just gonna I'm I'm gonna show you some uh, examples from the hippocampus but it's pretty much the same or the theory is the same when we think about the cortex and the cerebellar synapses. And at this point also, you may be wondering, well, why why am I talking about amnesias? And now I'm going to talk about this long-term potentiation. And if you've looked through the objectives, we're going to talk about epilepsies. Now, all through our sessions, we've started by talking about our neurons and our glia, so our special neuronal cell types, what they do, and then we've progressed to discuss how they carry their information, what receptors they use, and in some instances, how things can go wrong with that transmission. So by using our, the theory is that synaptic plasticity is involved in our capability to have memory. And as we know with seizures, we, we discussed our, um, our, our neuralgias, for example, so when we had hyperexcitability of our neurons in epilepsies, there's another situation where there is hyperexcitability. So that's where these topics come into play. So as I said, uh, using the hippocampus as an example here, have a hippocampal slice. And just to orient you, we have our prefrontal pathway here. So we're starting in the entorhinal cortex. And we see that, see these green fibers here? They travel all the way to the dentate, all the way around to our dentate gyrus, synapsing with our Mossy fibers and our pyramidal fibers in a region called CA3, and then these pyramidal fibers span back to another group with, via some sh- something called Schaffer collaterals to another set of subset of pyramidal fibers in this CA1 region, and then everything actually then the connections come right back so full circle back to this prefrontal area and what's important or interesting about this whole circuit is that it's an excitatory circuit so it utilizes glutamate even though we previously discussed how glutamate can be exocytotoxic this is a mode of us to to, to enable us to have plasticity in our hippocampal slices and this is where now the ter- this is where the terms ltp and ltd long term potentiation and long term depression come into place so if we have a high frequency electrical stimulation so you keep just keep firing 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 that is where we would expect to see long-term potentiation. If you consistently fire low-frequency stimulation, then there is a long-term depression. Now let's have a a look at this graphically. So we have our stimulus, and here we have a response to the first stimulus. Okay, so the first stimulus, and the response is not so great. However, with repeated firing, we actually have a potentiation of our signal, and this potentiation can last, well, in here we have up to an hour later, we're still seeing this potentiation. So this is something that has longevity. Okay. Now, compared to the graphs that you would have seen before, this is upside down. Why? Because... In the previous slides, we discussed when we were taking our measurements, the probes are actually inserted into the cell, and in these slices, essentially, you're just putting the probe next door to the cell. So that's why the image is inverted. Okay? So later on, when you talk about hippocampus or even cerebellum, you may go into a bit You may go into a bit more about the cell types, or I don't know if you're going to have more histo or anatomy, but essentially, where's the mouse? The take home point is this is an excitatory circuit, okay? And we're using our glutamate to give us our LTP. So that is the theory of what is taking place here in terms of our memory. And you'll discuss more about memory in lectures after your exam. So this is just to get you started. This is your basis of knowledge for when preparing you for when you have those lectures. So experimental synaptic plasticity. So we just discussed LTP and LTD. And it's important to note that there's a specificity when we think about our synapses. So we have input one in blue and input two in red. And then we have the red graph here, sorry, the blue graph and the red graph with our basal response. And we note that we have an from baseline we have an increase in response, so indicating to us that we had LTP. So we can stimulate, have high-frequency stimulation repeatedly at input one and get an LTP, but not affect our input two. So that is what we mean when we say synaptic specificity. Even though this is one neuron, the stimulation is actually towards this group of synapses, so therefore only these synapses have become plastic as it were. Again, looking at our time course, we have just to show you again, we have baseline, and now we're below baseline when we so we've had our stimulus. We expect this that we've given a low frequency stimulus and we've had Lt. D. Calcium dependence as it relates to synaptic plasticity. So for the purposes of these lectures, we have our glutamate being released and binding to the NMDA receptor. And essentially, the influx of ions through the NMDA receptor leads to increased intracellular calcium in the postsynaptic neuron. And this increase in calcium now allows the cell or causes the insertion of AMPA receptors on the postsynaptic neuron. So it's postulated again. So when there's high-frequency stimulation, this large calcium influx causes receptors to be inserted. So again, they can respond better, so they can have plasticity. And when we have low-frequency stimulation, we actually remove receptors due to the fact that there is a low level of calcium in the postsynaptic neuron. How do you know if it's high frequency or not? It's just a case of repetitive firing. I'm not, I, I don't know the specific hertz, shall we say, yeah, in terms of the neurons. Well, these, these what we're doing here, this is all, if you wanna say theoretical or done, done in a lab to try and postulate what's happening with our memories. So they. In the in lab, you would have uh, maybe done 50 hertz or 100 hertz, and so that deemed that to be high frequency, and then maybe a 20, repeated 20 hertz stimulation. The result was that the neurons didn't work as as well as they should, and then you got the graph where you had LTD. So And the, um, the whole point is then the LTP and the LTD last for a long period of time. So when you've stopped the high-frequency or low-frequency stimulation, you still see that increase or decrease for a while. Our regions and our specific roles. So we have kinases and phosphatases, and... So as I said, we, we just used the hippocampus as an example today. Just showing you alongside with the cerebellum. So we have our two different glutamate receptors, GLU-R1 and GLU-R2. So glur one in the hippocampus, the glur r 2 subunit in the cerebellum. And the take-home point here is we have a process. With regards to our kinases and phosphatases, we have in the hippocampus phosphorylation leads to LTP and dephosphorylation leads to LTD. However, in the cerebellum, it is reversed dephosphorylation for LTP and phosphorylation for LTD. Question. 10 seconds. There is a timeout okay I think responses have stopped. Anyone else want to click in you' happy for me to close the timer okay. So, we've got, most of you have chosen, so suffered that whatever's happened to this boy involves failures of retrieval, which may be alleviated by queuing. And yes, I think I agree with you there. So, he's consumed excessive amounts of alcohol, not able to remember what happened the night before, asked his friends to help him out with his memory, so they've become a cue, so wasn't able to retrieve the information, and his friends helped him out there to get those memories back. So what are relations among paroxysms, seizures, epilepsies, and something called epileptogenesis? So if... I looked up paroxysm, and it was described as a sudden violent outburst. So in this case, we see this, there's a sudden onset or burst of neuronal activity, and we can observe this if we do an EEG. So we can see the additional firing or the sudden bursts of firing. This may constitute clinically two significant effects and when we have these ex- significant effects we now call them seizures so let's have a little scenario we're going to have so paroxysmal consequences of a brain insult so from birth this person's absolutely fine but the red line indicates that an injury has taken place a head injury a brain injury has taken place and the green line is related to the memory about 24 hours before the injury. So we see that 24 hours before the injury, there has been retrograde amnesia. So why do we think that's been the case? Well, perhaps the engrams have not been, we haven't been able to consolidate our engrams imprint that memory, that information, so it's not hardwired, so we're, you know, what if we, we discussed how we could have amnesias, and one of them was, well, you haven't really laid down the engrams appropriately, and that's what would have taken place here. So with the head, head injury, essentially, there's been, you can liken it to a short circuit of the system and then this person goes about their life, happy, working, having fun with their friends, socializing, maybe choosing to become a medical student and come to SGU. But there you go, so everything's been fine. Until then, they've started to have seizures. Some effect, the doctors prescribe some effective medication. Everything's been quiet again. Then some seizures have taken place here and there. It's often the case that there needs to be some adjustment of seizure medication for persons with, uh, who, are, well, who are having seizures or if they're deemed to be having epilepsy. And then there's a nice quiet period, so they're taking their medication happily. However, as we get older and closer to death, which comes to us all. We can't fight it off because (laughs) because of the increasing vulnerability of our body systems, we see an onset of or a frequency of seizures closer to death. Now, so we have a conversion here of a normal brain because this person was fine up until they had the head injury to a brain that now was having seizures, and that is what is called epileptogenesis. So we had a non-epileptic brain being turned into an epileptic one. Our classification of our epilepsies and seizures, and try and make try to distinguish some uh, normal from epileptiform patterns of our EEG. So just the basics here. We're not gonna we're not aiming to be epilepsy specialists or epileptologists. So our seizures. So there's a pathology. So there's hypersynchronicity taking place. It's a chronic disorder. When we, think of, sorry, when we think of epilepsies, we have a chronic disorder and we have our hypersynchronicity. Now, that's not to say that in, if we just look at the word seizures, well, essentially, any one of us could have a seizure. That does not mean we are epileptic. If you stuck your finger in an electrical socket, what would happen? You'd have a seizure. Yeah, That doesn't mean that you have epilepsy. But... <laughs> you just what <laughs> okay so but so there's a pathological synchronization of our neural neuronal activity and it should be typically self terminating in terms of our epilepsies so this is a chronic disorder and we hope that it terminates within 1 to 2 minutes it's rarely longer, but if it goes beyond five minutes, we are in something called status epilepticus, and this is dangerous because now, well, the body becomes fatigued, we're, in a, we ha- we're having excitotoxicity, so now we're, obviously we're going to be damaging the brain if we allow this to go any further. So you want to be getting to your patient as soon as possible or trying to... Satiate the seizure using some IV medications where needed And if um, that's not working You may want to fully anesthetize them With a drug such as propofol, for example In uncontrolled fits So that's to avoid our Well, patient is becoming exhausted And to avoid cerebral damage further cerebral damage. So, our relationship among seizures, convulsions, and epilepsies. So, I think we, we hopefully we, we discussed what epileptogenesis was. We discussed epilepsy, so we ex- have, uh, well, epilepsies are chronic now, so I said it was a chronic condition, so it's a chronic susceptibility to seizures. It's not that something has just happened and that's caused you to have a seizure. Now it's a chronic problem. And so the, the seizure is the, this, these hypersynchronous events that happen with our neurons, our neuronal activity, and the motor, mani- motor manifestation of these would be our convulsions. Classifications. So if we first think about our generalized seizures, essentially they would emanate from all parts of the brain. And so hypersynchronous activity taking place all over the brain, and with that said, I think you should be happy to accept that we'd expect consciousness to be lost from the outset because we're having this activity Throughout the brain Secondary Generalized seizures Again bilateral But synchronization Arising out of a Partial seizure so we have consciousness Lost at a a Transition From a partial to A generalized And we have our So we have our Different uh, We have our motor presentations, and we have some absence of typical and atypical um, manifestations. We'll describe a bit more on the next slide. So what are our common features? Let's look more into those common features that are highlighted in the box. So you may see a family history. There may be an early onset, could be due to malformations, so some developmental issues. As I said, the gen- if it's generalized from the outset, you will have—you'd expect unconsciousness because of the bilateral discharge, which is widespread. Behavioral manifestations. A well-known one is something called absence seizures, for example, and if this is in a, chi- in a child, a young person. An astute teacher might notice poor performance at school. Because what happens in an absence seizure? There isn't any violent jerking or twitching or you know this the, the motor manifestations of seizure activity. When someone has an absence seizure, happily speaking to you, and then they'll just carry on speaking like nothing happened and they won't know that they even had a seizure. So you can imagine if there's a child at school and throughout the day they're having absence seizures, they're missing whole chunks of their work leading to their poor performance. Our, so here we have now some motor manifestations that can take place. So if it's not an absence seizure, we can have clonic seizures, tonic seizures, tonic, clonic, clonic, tonic. Essentially, what's happening is the clonic seizure, you're having the repetitive flexion and extension of the limbs and trunk and the tonic. There's a sustained muscular contraction. And then, of course, this can happen in any order, and my first experience with someone who had, a, who had tonic-clonic seizures was one of my school friends, and I used to sit behind her in class, and we'd all know when she was about to have a seizure, because suddenly you'd see her rocking in her chair, and the chair would just start to rock back and forth, and then you would knew when the chair stopped, She'd gone into that rigor and we just had to clear our desks and then put her in the appropriate safe position and she would then violently have her seizure and we'd take care of her afterwards. Epistotonic, we already discussed. Uh, If you remember from our tetanus toxin, the epistotonus. so the hyperposturing, complete bent back, Atonic, complete loss of muscle tone And in infantile spasms The children, unfortunately, they will have something called Well, they'll have a brief stiffening of the body And this will occur in series And these babies look as though they're, they're bouncing So they'll be like this And you can imagine that this is a, well, a great burden You know, that you're at a developmental stage and it's the, the, the baby's brain or the small child's brain is very delicate um, in stages of development. So to have this hypersynchronous activity taking place is not very good. And this can be linked to something called hips arrhythmias and we'll see the epileptic potential in a moment. So our partial seizures. Well, the difference between those and our generalised is that now we arise from local, localised uh, portions of the brain. So it's not it's not all over the brain. It's from it will be from specific areas. So the person now will may have some kind of awareness, and we have differentiations between simple partial and complex partial. Which sometimes have, which often have something called aura associated with them. So, now going through, as I said, simple partial seizures. So, there'll be a focus of the seizure. There may be some kind of trigger. So, it could be a somatosensory experience, motor trigger. Depend- so, depending on which lobe. Is the foci There can be some, something called the Jacksonian march So the trigger or the start of the seizure Will start in one place And then it will follow along the homunculus So you may start to have some The person will have some kind of sensory event in their fingers Their fingers will be tingling And then next door we have the face area The motor portion of the homunculus So then after having the tingling in their fingers They may start to have twitching of the face And then so on and so on Until all um, other body parts May start to have some representation of seizure activity So that's simple partial And simple partial can progress into complex partial seizures I mentioned Aura so, and we said that the person was conscious, so they, sometimes they, have, they, they will, may have some kind of smell or sense of, so they'll have a sense of knowing that a seizure is about to take place. Strong emotions are commonly experienced in persons with these kinds of seizures. For example, fear, listed on your slide. And in knowing that their seizure is perhaps about to take place, the patient might, want to, might try to do some distraction techniques. So they'll try to talk to you a bit more. You're, the person you know may grab you by the arm in an effort to abate the seizure. And then we have now secondary generalized seizures. So we had our generalized seizure, and we said that there was hypersynchronous activity throughout the brain, But a secondary generalized seizure is one that started, it started as a partial seizure, progressed to the complex partial, and then on to a full generalized seizure. So, in the end, again, ending up with bilateral um, hypersynchronicity and a frank loss of consciousness. So, our EEG. So here we just have the main types of our waves that we see for EEG. And in terms of epileptic potential, the key ones to note at this stage are, as I mentioned, the hypsarrhythmias. So characteristic of the infertile spasms and our spikes and waves. Spikes and waves are characteristic of the absence seizures. Question. Okay. Oh, there's the graph. All right. So is the scatter in our responses? So we previously discussed this in in the lecture, gave an example. So we have a young person, seven-year-old girl. She's performing poorly in school, and the teachers notice that several times during the session she's paused in her activity and become motionless. So what type of seizure, what type of um, activity were we thinking of? What type of seizures? Absence seizures. Excellent. So which family do the absence seizures belong to? They belong to the primary generalized classification. Okay. So that's the rationale for that question and you would see the spikes and waves. So let's discuss select approaches to pharmacological regulation of seizures. We spoke about one of these drugs already. Just in, in those parts of the lectures, we were focusing more on looking at what happens with particular channels, not really focusing on the drug per se at that time, but now these medications come into their own. So select anti-seizure strategies are sodium channel blockers. So from what you know about our various channels, our sodium channels, our GABA channels, and our calcium channels, I hope that you can see how agonists or antagonists here are channel blockers would be effective procedures or effective drugs to use. So, our sodium channel blocker, phenytoin, we said that it binds specifically to the inner portion of the sodium channel. So when it's in its inactivated, inactivated state, so it doesn't obstruct normal sodium flow. It only blocks the channels when they're hyperactive, okay? So it's a use-dependent block of the sodium channels. Our GABA agonists, well, what is our GABA channel? It's a chloride channel, so we have a flow, an inhibitory flow if we used an agonist there, so we're heightening our uh, GABA response. So we're increasing the negative potential, therefore decreasing the ability to have hyperactivity. And our calcium channel blockers, they inhibit the spike-generating potentials, so our spike, spike generation of our cal- calcium currents that take place. So we're looking to inhibit the repetitive firing and we, want to, we don't want to have sedative effects. We want these patients to be able to go about their normal lives. And that is it. Finished for the morning. Thank you.